Oh, I'm excited to uh, have the opportunity in here. Um, in the days ahead, we'll, we'll have our Bibles under the chairs, and I'll be able to say, hey, if you can track down a Bible, quite literally find one, and you'll crawl over each other's laps, and we'll hear the opening of scriptures together. But today, if you would, if you do have a Bible, and we'll also put it up on the screen, but please do get with me to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll pray, and we will get to work. Luke 23, starting in verse 26. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the crim criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would speak, that we would hear your voice through your word by your spirit. We pray, Lord, as we consider the crucifixion and, and all that it entails, we pray that you would help us to search our own hearts and think through how we are responding to that news. I pray, Lord, that all of us would walk out of here with a greater awareness of what you have done, a greater appreciation for the love that you displayed on the cross for us. We ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, here in this story, we have multiple episodes where we find these different, these different interactions with the crucifixion event. And we can see then some of the different ways in which people still interact with the crucifixion. And so let's look at them one at a time. There are four. The first is to view the, the crucifixion as an interruption, to be cruising through life, going about your business, and then to have the crucifixion event just kind of land in your lap, and then you, you're forced to deal with it. 
That's the case of Simon. If you look at verse 26, it says, as the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and they put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Remember, we were looking at this uh, in an earlier series, but during their day and age, they had this legal provision where a Roman soldier could co-opt you into whatever they were doing. But it was limited. They could only force you to carry something a mile, but you could be going about your business, and just like we see in all the you know, uh, movies, they'll be like, FBI, I'm taking your vehicle. And they just cruise out of there and trash the thing. And that's kind of what was going on in the first century. That They were basically saying, hey, you, I need you right now in this moment to be a part of this official business. And so that's what's going on. Simon is coming in from the country. He's going about his business. They see him there. They've got this, this prisoner, so to speak, that is beaten and tired, that is completely devastated and cannot carry the weight of his cross. And so they go, hey, you dude, come over here and help this man carry his cross. So for him, it's not that he was intentional in this. It wasn't that he was thinking through, how can I put myself in a situation where I could appreciate the crucifixion? No, no, no. He was just going about his business and all of a sudden there he is having to deal with the crucifixion, having to witness Jesus the Christ, carrying the cross with all of the beatings, with all of the disfigurement that he's gone through, and then to carry it there and to watch as things unfold. And one of the things that that I note is, sometimes God will divinely interrupt your life, and it's a good thing. When Simon was coming in from the country, he had no idea what was about to unfold. But I think it was significant for him. In one of the other Gospels, so Luke wrote this account, but there are multiple authors who wrote about the life and ministry of Christ. And one of the other guys who wrote, his name was Mark. And Mark tells the same story, but he includes a little little reference point. This is Mark 15, verse 21. He's telling the same story, but to his audience, a Christian audience, he puts this little reference point in there, and he says, uh, they they, um, grabbed Simon from Cyrene, And then he says this thing here. He says, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And then he just carries on with the story. And the commentators all point out, his audience must have known Alexander and Rufus. Otherwise, that's just just throwaway information. So he's writing... And his, he's talking about the events, and he says, oh, yeah, and this guy was co-opted into this experience where he was carrying the cross. And guys, it was the father of Alexander and Rufus, and the commentators say, the reason why that Christian community would know Alexander and Rufus is because they must be a part of it. They must be a part of that Christian community. Now, this is speculation, but, but, but wouldn't it be fascinating if the reason why Alexander and Rufus are well-known in the Christian community is because of their dad. Because their dad was divinely interrupted by God and had to deal with the crucifixion and maybe as a result of that became a believer and told his kids. Sometimes God will interrupt us. Now, what I've been saying is speculating on the text, but this point certainly comes from all sectors of the Bible. God sometimes will step into your life in ways you are not anticipating. And that's a good thing. And that's a good thing. He will step into your life and he will surprise you. And it is a good thing. So some of us, we kind of, we didn't really plan for what's happening this weekend. 
We didn't really, you know, strategize and go, I'm going to be very intentional with this weekend. I'm going to, I'm going to strategize. Maybe you just kind of, you were invited today to come to a Good Friday service, and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm here. But maybe what God wants to do is he wants, to, he, he wants this truth bomb to land on your life. And all of a sudden, you were going about your business, and you had a plan, and it's about to get scrapped. And God's going to show up, and he's going to do some incredible things in your life. The other thing that we find here is that some people deal with the crucifixion in a way that's just sentimental. They, they look at this, and they emotionally engage with it. And Jesus says, I, he's very tender with this group. But, but he points out what you are doing is not as, it, it doesn't go as deep as it should. You're dealing with the crucifixion and you're emotionally engaged with it, but there's more to it than that. Look with me at verse 27. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. There's a group of people, they were following along with this and they, they, were, they were emotionally engaged with it. They're going, this is a miscarriage of justice. This man is innocent, he's, he's been falsely accused, and now he's going to be executed, and he doesn't deserve it, and they're weeping and they're wailing. They're, they're emotionally moved by this, and Jesus looks to them, and he, and he speaks tenderly, but he says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, weep for yourselves and your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Here's what he's saying. You are emotionally engaged and that's a good thing, but it needs to go even deeper than that. The thing that you ought to be broken over is not just the miscarriage of justice going on here. It's not just the, the tragedy of what's unfolding at the crucifixion. He's saying, what you need to do is look through that, beyond that, to what that is actually pointing to, both, both a greater rebellion to come and the judgment of God. And that's why he uses this very colorful language here where he's saying, there is a season when people will flat out reject the things of God. If, if people are doing this right now when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? If people do this with the Son of God, what will happen when he is absent from us? People will rebel and turn away. But the greatest tragedy that he wants us to interact with is the fact that we ought to be weeping over the judgment to come. We ought to be weeping over the time when people will call to the mountains to fall on us, to cover us. He's saying, when you weep, that, that's okay, but I want it to be aimed at the right thing. There is a judgment coming, and if we will not turn from sin and turn toward God, we too will experience that judgment. So he's saying, basically Jesus is saying in this moment, if you only knew what was unfolding. You're sad right now, but if you only knew the magnitude of the moment, the gravity of the moment, then you too would also cry out, not just for the, un, not just for the miscarriage of, of justice, but, but for the reality of sin. To be able to look at your own heart and say, this, this is my problem. As we sang a few minutes ago, it was my sin that held him there. It wasn't just that the Roman officials had captured this individual. It was the fact that Jesus was going to the cross according to the plan. And the reason for it is me. And he's saying, you ought to weep about that. As you interact with the crucifixion, 
Don't just have an emotional response to it. Allow for it to land on your soul in that way where you say, this is about me because Jesus loves me. Because of my sin, he was willing to go to that cross for me. A third way that people interact with the crucifixion is with hostility or contempt. There's a whole batch of people who look at what the Lord is doing here and they can't fathom it. They can't understand it, so they just despise it. There are rulers and soldiers and even one of the criminals who are, who, are, who are basically saying to the Lord, whatever it is that you're doing, it doesn't make sense to me. And they mock him and they ridicule him and they insult him in those ways. Now, I, I wish I could say, you know what, in here, we're at a Good Friday service. A lot of good people are here. A lot of Christians are here that are good people that are trying to do right by God and, and follow him and, and be obedient and all these different things. So, so there's a temptation to say, you know what, maybe this response isn't present in here. But then I got thinking about it and I, I realized, no, this response of treating the Lord with contempt and hostility, actually the most likely people to do that, it's us. It's religious people. And we have expectations for how the Lord ought to operate. And when he doesn't play by our rules, what do we do? we get raging mad. When he doesn't do what we anticipate, we struggle with it. That's why the rulers, look at verse 35, the rulers are the religious leaders. Verse 35, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. And they, they said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. They're mocking him because they, don't, they can't fathom what he's doing. He's not doing what they anticipate. And it makes them mad and it makes them angry. And so some, sometimes we just need to be honest and we need to own that and say as believers, this is our temptation. When things don't go according to what we think the Lord should be doing, we get mad and we treat him and his plan with hostility. Well, the soldiers too, they join in this critique of him, verses 36 and 37. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and they said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And finally, the criminal, verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Over and over again, you hear that refrain. If you really have that sort of power, why aren't you doing something? If you really have that sort of power, why aren't you using it for your own benefit? In fact, there's a tremendous irony here. They keep saying, if you're the king of the Jews, if you're the Messiah, if you're the chosen one of God, if you are, if you are, if you are, then you ought to behave accordingly. The irony is posted on the placard right above him, verse 38. There was a notice written above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. That's the reason why he's being executed is for that very claim. He is claiming to be the king of the Jews, and they're saying, look, if you really are, why don't you use that power? Why don't you use that saving power to save yourself and us? Here's the response then. When we look at the crucifixion, a lot of us say, I want the power of God to land in my life for me. I want the power of God to land in my life for my benefit. I, I don't understand how he could have that much power and not use it for his own advantage, but certainly for mine as well. Some of us respond in that way. We, we don't understand the work of God, and we think he should be doing more in our lives. 
And in a moment like this, it's a good opportunity for the Holy Spirit to search us out and go, what do we really want from him? Do we really want him and him alone, or do we want what he can do for us? Jesus reminds us here he has better intentions for us than just giving us what we want. That leads us to the final response, and this is the most beautiful and the most appropriate. It is to respond to the crucifixion with faith. It's an incredible response, and it actually comes from a scoundrel. It comes from a criminal. It comes from one of the men that have been sentenced to death. Where did that come from then? Why is it that in that moment he is laying claim to Jesus Christ by faith? How did he have the wherewithal to do that? Well, one of the obvious reasons is God spiritually awakened him to it. He was watching this unfold, spiritually dead, and all of a sudden he realizes whatever's happening here, this is significant. And he begins to recognize that this is no ordinary execution. The unfolding of these events is life-changing. And so I think it came from the work of God, but I also think that it came from observing the Lord and, and what the Lord did on the cross. Look again at the middle of the passage, verses 32 to 34. It describes the events, but there's, there's a, a thing that the Lord says in here that is so profound. Verses 32 and following, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. He was able to say to the people who were killing him, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And the criminal heard that, and he, he heard the invitation that was built into it. He heard this man, this divine one who was being executed on a cross say, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And he had the wherewithal to say, there's an invitation there. There's something for me there. There's an invitation to turn to him and, and find forgiveness. There's an invitation built into his intercession. He's praying to God, but he's saying, Father, forgive them. And, and the criminal says, I'm, I'm looking for that. I am stepping in to that invitation. He's recognizing his own guilt, his own culpability in all of this, his own sin. But he's relying on Jesus Christ for his salvation. So look at verse 40. But the other criminal rebuked the first one who was casting insults at the Lord. And he said, don't you fear God? Since you're under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. He's recognizing the good news of the gospel, that he deserves what is coming, but this other man is standing in someone else's place. He's innocent, but he is on the cross sacrificially. So here's the request that he makes, verse 42. It's breathtaking. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's insane. He's looking at a man right next to him, nailed to a crucifix. And he has this awareness, this can't be the end. This is a king. And I don't know how this is going to unfold, but 
just from a, just from a normal observational sense, he's about to die. Like if you're just looking at this unfold from kind of that natural vantage point, this guy's a goner. But he looks at him and he says, you're a king. And when you come into that kingdom, remember me. Remember me. It's an expression of his faith in Jesus Christ. He heard the good news of the gospel and Jesus offering pardon to the undeserving. And he says, that's what I need. So when you come into your kingdom, will you please remember me? And Jesus turns to him and responds in the way that he responds to us as well, with an affirmation of that promise. He says to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. We're going to die here, but you, my friend, you're going to be with me in paradise. So this man responds with faith. The criminal recognizes who Jesus truly is, the Son of God. And he has enough spiritual sense to say, remember me. As we continue our service now, and we'll worship more in just a moment, we'll take communion together, but I hope that you would respond to the crucifixion with faith, that you would look to the Lord and you would say tonight in in your heart of hearts, Lord, will you remember me? I'm, I'm, I'm laying claim on you by faith. I don't deserve this. I've done so many things, but you are a good and gracious Savior. Remember me, Lord, and he will say, my friend, I will. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now, as we consider the crucifixion and the different people and their interactions with the Lord in that, in that day and age, Lord, would you help us to identify our own hearts and the way that we oftentimes reject the invitation. So right now, as we continue to worship together, would you help us to place our faith in our Lord and Savior and find him to be a good and gracious Savior because that's who he truly is. So we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.